right, so uh, we're in week five of our series on justice, the Story of God series. And so we've been working our way from the beginning of the Bible, we're to Jesus, we're to the New Testament now. And because understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew 12. So as I've been saying uh, throughout this series, uh, justice is, as we all know, a hugely popular topic right now in society. It also happens to be a hugely prominent theme in the Bible. And as with any word or any concept or any idea, how that word is used in our society and how the Bible talks about it don't always match. And that's true on the whole issue of justice. Interestingly, because of some of the history in our country, the reality is that there is a lot of overlap, uh, but they don't always match. And so I have this pastoral concern that a lot of Christians don't know that the Bible talks a lot about justice. And because they don't know that, uh, they sometimes buy into some ideas on the one hand that are so far from what the biblical idea of justice is that they eventually wa wa wind up walking away from a relationship with Christ and from faith. On the other hand, you have a lot of Christians that because they don't know uh, what the Bible says, uh, they ignore what it says. Well, they're, they're not ignoring it, they just are not living what the Bible says about justice. And those are two dangers and those are really two problems. So this series is uh, an attempt to build a better understanding of social justice from a biblical point of view so that we can seek justice and we can stand against injustice and we can do it together uh, as Christians, together. And we can do it in a way that glorifies God and demonstrates love for our neighbors. And I really believe that Christians can be united in a concern for biblical justice. And we can do it in a way, uh, even when we don't always agree with what the solutions are. And sometimes we're not even going to agree on what constitutes an injustice in our society. But if we go forward united, instead of polarized, instead of fighting, if we go forward united, we learn from each other. We really can learn from each other. We all have something to learn. And we can think and we can speak and we can act in ways that reflect a biblical standard of justice. We can act on our convic convictions and we can do that together. So as a Story of God series, you know, we started with Genesis and have been working our way through. We're in the scene in our Story of God course that we do here, the scene that we're in. We divided the Bible into 10 different scenes. We're in the salvation scene. And that's right where the four Gospels are. And so before we jump into the Bible, though, and into the sermon, let's pray for God's Spirit to illuminate His Word. And the prayer uh, of illumination today is based on Proverbs chapter 2. So please join me in prayer. Father, as we look to Your Word, Your Word that You've given to us, we ask that by Your Holy Spirit You would open our hearts and our hands to receive Your Word. Give us wisdom and understanding as we seek to know you more and help us to treasure your truth as we follow after you. Father, we bring to you several uh, concerns. I bring to you several concerns. One is the uh, condominium um, uh, situation uh, with the falling down of that building in, in Miami, uh, the loss of life, the search for 
uh, survivors, Father, I pray that that you would give strength uh, to all in that situation, that you would, um, if there's anyone that's alive under that rubble, that they would be found. Uh, we just lift that up to you, Father, and, and, uh, and help the, the families of those who have lost people uh, and those who are doing the searching um, as they, they suffer trauma in what they find. Uh, so watch over them, Father. Father, as COVID uh, continues to wreak havoc all over the world and so many countries, I pray for those countries. I pray for vaccines to get to them and to, um, to help uh, bring some stability. And especially for those who uh, are poor and suffering, who don't have computers and don't work on Zoom meetings and whose lives are being impacted in such deep ways by this um, and by death, I pray that you would watch over them. I pray for the churches in those areas, that you would equip them and protect them, uh, help them to be there uh, for those people. And Father, uh, now that the Chauvin verdict has been pronounced, I pray, Father, for continued healing. I pray, Father, for continued reforms that need to take place. And um, we just thank you, Father. We thank you that you are involved in our lives and that we can bring our concerns, our personal concerns to you as well. Pray this all in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so let's uh, let's watch the video being uh, the scripture being read. Matthew twelve fifteen through twenty one. Aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant, whom I have chosen the one I love in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. All right, to, to really uh, get an appreciation for what Jesus came and did, um, you have to go back to what we talked about in week two, where we looked at Abraham and the promise of blessing to Abraham and the mission that Abraham had that he and his descendants would bless the whole world. And one of the things that it says in Genesis 18 in recounting what Abraham was going to do is that his people would live just and right lives. And those are the words justice and righteousness. And then we trace that theme throughout the Old Testament at key points, at key points over and over again. It comes back to uh, commending King David, for example, for reigning with justice and righteousness, and then condemning kings who didn't reign with justice and righteousness. So that theme just keeps coming up over and over again. So uh, as Jesus comes into Israel and as he does his ministry, one of the things that we see is that Jesus is the fulfillment, as a descendant of Abraham, of what God said would happen. The nations would be blessed because a descendant, in this case a descendant of Abraham, would do justice and righteousness. So if you were to do a word search uh, on your computer, for the word just or justice, 
in the New Testament, or in the Gospels in particular, uh, I want to share with you what you would find. And um, one of them would be the passage, or at least two of the instances would be in the passage that we just heard read and that we're going to look at here for, for a moment. And so um, in this case, we're going to look at verse 18 in particular, where Matthew is talking about the ministry of Jesus. It says that Jesus you know, was healing people and warning people not to talk about him, and there was a purpose in that at this point in his ministry. But here's what it, here's what it says. It says in the beginning of verse 18, here is my servant whom I have chosen. So he's, he's quoting Isaiah, and he's saying this prophecy that Isaiah gave about the Messiah was being fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus is fulfilling this. So here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love and whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So Jesus is this Messiah who is going to proclaim justice, and he's going to bring justice to victory. Now, that may sound like, like it's some kind of, um, you know, we talked about from week one that justice in the Bible has a couple of different meanings or a couple of different nuances. One is retributive justice, which is punishment for evildoing, and the other one is restorative justice, which is restoring dignity uh, of you know, for people who are made in the image of God. So this one sounds like, in many ways, that he is going to bring justice to victory. It might sound like retributive justice until you read the next verse. If you look at verse 21, it says, in his name, the nations will put their hope. There's the tie-in with doing justice and righteousness, you know, all the way back, that theme through the Old Testament, and Jesus now comes. And so Matthew is framing Jesus' teaching and his healing, his entire ministry, Matthew is framing it by quoting Isaiah as a mission of restorative justice. It's not to bring the hammer down on the nations. It's the nations are going to find their hope in him. Now, here's what Jesus says about justice uh, himself out of his own mouth. It's from uh, Matthew 23, and it's a passage where it's towards the end of Jesus' ministry, and he, he begins to pronounce a bunch of woes, which are judgments, condemnations on the religious leaders. And so here's one of them. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices. Okay, so they would you know, grow their own spices, and then they would even tithe from their spices. So you, you, you tithe your mint, your dill, and your cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. What are they? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Okay, so these are two really significant passages. <laughs> and Matthew, and so we see is that Matthew's gospel is framing what Jesus does and says as restorative justice. And Jesus, like the Old Testament prophets condemns the religious leaders for neglecting justice. And then that's it. That's all he says about justice in the Gospels. So 
why does Jesus and Matthew, why do they frame the ministry that he has around justice, but he never mentions the word justice or hardly mentions it? There's one other case. It's a parable about an unjust judge. It's not a parable about justice. It's a parable about prayer. And, and so that's it. That's all you'll find. Uh, so why? Why does he rarely talk about it? Now, I'm going to give you three reasons. The first two are my speculations. The third one is the solid one, all right? But I'll give you a couple of speculations. So uh, in, my, in my own search, and, and I couldn't research this all the way to the end, but as I looked at the Greek word for justice, um, un, unlike the Hebrew word for justice, which is mishpat, the Greek word carries a connotation of condemnation. It would be almost like every time the word justice is used in Greek, it would be the word in English, condemnation. Now, you can't take the word condemnation or punishment and turn it into restorative punishment, you know, or restorative condemnation. Um, it's kind of final uh, in, in it being carried out. But yet in the Old Testament, the word mishpat, the Hebrew word for justice, Nine out of ten times, nine out of ten, it's used hundreds of times, nine out of every ten times, it's used for restorative justice. It's not about punishment. It's not about, you know, someone getting their due in the sense of you have done something evil and now you're going to pay for it. It's more like people getting their due, meaning they are made in the image of God, they are valuable to God, and their situation needs to be restored or protected. So nine out of ten times. The Greek word doesn't seem to have that semantic range that it can be used in that way. So um, now add to this the difficulty of the fact that Jesus didn't speak Greek. He may have been able to speak Greek, but his teaching is, was given in Aramaic. And so the Gospels are all in Greek. And so you already have to translate what Jesus said into another language, and every translation is a, an interpretation. You can't go word for word. A lot of people like to you know, say that their version of the Bible is very literal, and it's like, that's really not a good word. There is no such thing as a translation that's literal. You would not understand it, and if you don't speak two languages, you may not quite understand how that works, but it just doesn't work that way. So, uh, here's a second point related to this. Jesus frequently talks about righteousness, which is the other side of the justice coin. Remember in week two again, we saw how these two are define each other and are related. You can speak of one without speaking of the other, but be assuming that the other is being spoken of. It's just like um, repentance and faith. It, they don't always get mentioned together, but they're built into the very concept itself is you can't have faith in God without turning away from something. And if you turn away from something in a Christian way, you're turning towards God, faith. And so it's the same thing. Justice and righteousness is, is the standard for justice is righteousness. That's the standard for justice. And righteousness as a term in Hebrew as well as in Greek in the Bible is a relational term. It's a social term. It's not just... It includes personal righteousness, but it includes relationships and making relationships right. We as Americans, we individualize everything. We have to fight that tendency to individualize everything. We have to think like they thought back then. We have to think like the Bible presents things. So we think of righteousness in terms of personal ethics, but the Bible speaks of it in relational and social terms, not just in terms of personal ethics. 
All right, here's the third reason, and this is, this is the really solid one. Why doesn't Jesus talk about justice? Well, when Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, and that's his primary thing he talked about, and kingdom of God, if you have trouble understanding what that is, just think rule of God, where God rules, all right? When Jesus talks about the kingdom of God, it's about restorative justice. It's about the restoration of the way that things are supposed to be. Shalom, of what, what it, the world was intended to be, what we were intended to be. It's about a restoration of the dignity of being made in the image of God and the restoration of living with God as our king and as our ruler. Okay, so Jesus so closely, I mean, if you go from the prophets at the end of the uh, Old Testament, and you come and you pick up Jesus and you start reading what Jesus says. It's almost like the overlap is incredible between what the prophet said and what Jesus said. So it's, it's, it's shocking. It was to me to go for a search of the word justice and find that it came off his lips once in that way until you realize that's exactly what the kingdom of God is all about. Uh, we could spend the rest of this sermon and more just reading those passages, but I want to give you a sample of this. So John the Baptist gets arrested. He's languishing in prison. Uh, he has not heard yet Jesus say, I am the one. I am the Messiah. And so he's wondering, I thought he was the one. What if he isn't? So he sends some of his followers, some of his disciples to go to Jesus to ask him if he's the one. So in Luke chapter 7, here's what happens. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? At the very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits. He gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers. Okay, just want to stop for a second. A lot of you know where this is going. But if someone asks you, how do you know Jesus is the Messiah? I bet you not a one of us would give this answer. But this is the answer that he gave. That this is the evidence that I'm the Messiah. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news, the gospel, that's what that word is, the gospel is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Okay, we read this again in our context and we think, uh, you're wondering if I'm the one? Look at what power I have. That's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, look at what I'm doing. This is what the one was going to come and do, bring that restorative justice that the prophets talked about. We looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Look at what I am doing. I am doing exactly what the one is supposed to do. So we think, what, did you, what, the, what was the Messiah supposed to do? Come and die for our sins. True, 100% true. It's not all he came to do. He came to bring restoration to the entire earth, to bring the new creation eventually to our world. So Jesus is saying, look how God's rule is breaking in through me. Because that, that was his sermon. That was, that was a summary of his sermon um, by the gospel writers. The kingdom of God has come. It's come. It's breaking through him. It's evidenced by the number of people whose lives 
and dignity are being restored. All right. So how do justice and righteousness, how do, how do you do that according to Jesus? We're going to uh, look at three ways we can do that. And this, this first one pretty much covers everything, uh, but it is to pursue God's kingdom concerns or God's kingdom purposes. It's to pursue what Jesus said the kingdom is about, um, to make that our top priority, as he told us, to make the kingdom his priority. So Jesus proclaimed the gospel. We saw that in the last passage. He proclaimed the gospel, uh, which is an announcement of God's kingdom breaking through in him. Remember, gospel means announcement. It's, I don't even really particularly like the word good in front of it. Yeah, it was considered to be good news, but it wasn't always good news to the people that were hearing it. It was an announcement. And the announcement was God's kingdom is breaking in through me. So um, he proclaimed the gospel and, this really important end, he restored people to health and to community. Think of the lepers who he would heal and then he would say, go to the priest and get the okay to re-enter the community. So he's restoring people to health and to community. Uh, really important point though. The fact that Jesus proclaimed the gospel and healed people doesn't mean proclaiming and healing are the same. And it doesn't mean that they're equivalent. All right. Neither one stands on its own, but they're not the same thing. The gospel is about more than restoring health or about generosity to the poor, which is a, a major theme of justice in the Old Testament, um, or of defending the fatherless and the widow. It's about reconciliation with God. It's about restoring our relationship with God. Now, I'm going to put it really bluntly. According to the whole scripture um, the witness of the entire scripture from beginning to end, from beginning to the very end. If you, your relationship with God is at odds, if God is your enemy, which is what we are, we're enemies of God because that's what sin is, it's a rebellion against God as king of our lives. If you go through life and you are never reconciled to God by the means that he's provided through Christ, you will experience retributive justice. Because God cares about this broken world and he cares about the evil that we do. It matters to him. And so we will experience retributive justice. Now the fact that most of humanity is going to experience the retributive justice of God mattered to Jesus. It mattered to him. And that's why he has this mission that he sends us on to help reconcile people to God. People are lost without Jesus, and that matters to God, and it should matter to us, <laughs> okay? That's just basic Christianity 101, all right? Basic Christianity 101. But the and in there, he preached and he healed, is very important because the outworking of our salvation is an empowering and calling to do the work of the kingdom. We're called to continue to bring restorative justice in our world. We're called to live as kingdom people. doesn't mean I'm going to try to be the really good person in my own personal ethics. I'm, no, it means impacting people's lives. It means being an influence. We'll go to that in just a few moments. So um, prioritizing the kingdom is why we as a church don't just 
preach the gospel and say, hey, go out there and tell everybody about Jesus. We do say that. But we also demonstrate the gospel. We do it in acts of compassion. Um, and so, you know, we call, uh, we call it impact ministry. We used to call it compassion ministry. Uh, an older term that's often used uh, by a lot of people is social action. It's doing social action. Uh, but it's all restorative justice. It's all about helping people um, recover the dignity, to live in the dignity of who they are as made in the image of God. All right, so how do we do this? We prioritize God's kingdom. Number two, we steward our influence for God's kingdom purposes. This is a subset of the last point. But Jesus called us to be salt in the world, and he's called us to be the light for the world by the way that we live and the way that we love. Not just by our words, but by the way that we live and the way that we love. Um, I'm going to just, to make this point, um, because we've, we've looked at this so many times in the scripture, I'm just going to share with you three stories of what this might look like. So, uh, one is just something I heard recently on a news podcast that I listened to, The World and Everything in It, and on Fridays they interviewed John Stone Street about worldview issues, and as he's talking, he said, yeah, I just had a woman say to me, um, she said, we need more people, in the more Christians in the fashion industry. And he said, I, I asked her, why, why do you say that? And she said, because the fashion interest industry influences what is considered beautiful in our world. Think about that. Now take that same principle and you can apply it to other industries and other ways of working in our world. So we need more Christians in the entertainment industry. Think about why. We need more Christians in the news media. We need more Christians in the public schools. We need more Christians in corporations. We need more Christians in government. We need them stewarding in those places their influence in all those industries for kingdom purposes. So, so what if you don't, what if you look and say, well, I'm, I'm not like an influencer. I'm not in a, like, I don't work for government and um, I, I actually stay at home. I teach my kids or I work from home or I, um, um, there's a bunch of reasons why you might say, I'm not in fashion or media or government, I can't really do that. So I was having a conversation with one of our members recently. And, um, you know, there, there was potential of some disagreement on some things, and she wanted to talk to me about her disagreement. And um, uh, in part, as part of the conversation, she said to me, she said she didn't think racism was a problem in her neighborhood, she goes, I don't, I don't think it's a problem in Minnesota. And so I just watched uh, a documentary on redlining and, uh, uh, you know, um, and how it continues to have effects. You know, redlining, just to make sure we all know what I'm talking about, was that, you know, for about 50 years until the 1950s or something like that in the United States, uh, if you lived in a, or if you looked at a predominantly black neighborhood, on the real estate maps, they would put a red line around that neighborhood. So the maps, you can go and you can look at the evidence for yourself. They have all these red lines and then they write the word slum. So that's how people looking for a home and the real estate agents would say, well, you don't want to buy a house there. That's a slum. All right. And that happened for like 50 years. It was allowed to, to go on. Okay. So we all know, I think, that for most regular Americans, your home is like a major part of your wealth. That's a fact in America. 
But what if your home value is like goes like this or stays down here? Because real estate agents have identified your neighborhood as a slum, not because it's slum-like, but because it's predominantly black. So I just, I just recounted, well, this, this happened, and I don't think that the effects of that have disappeared. This has generational. And I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Think about your home value going like this. It's not going to just affect you. It's going to affect your kids, your grandkids, and maybe even beyond that. And so because of the wealth that gets passed on uh, in American families. And so I said that, and I, she didn't fight it. She just started thinking. And she goes, um, I used to work in the, in, in the um, uh, not real estate, but mortgage business. And, and she's, you know, kind of wistfully thinking back, and she says, this may surprise you, but I went out of my way to treat gay couples who were looking for homes really, really well and help them. And their response to me was like giving me flowers and saying, most people don't treat us this way. <laughs> Thank you for being so kind and being so helpful. And so I ran with that, and I said, now... I said, that's doing Jesus-style justice, restorative justice. I said, let's, let's, let's take another step, and let's just imagine for a minute that you were not only in the mortgage business, but you were also in the policymaking. Because of your mortgage, because you were in mortgage, you were invited to be part of a commission that makes real estate laws or recommends laws. See, a Christian not only acts personally in a way, she would be also called... To, um, to try to influence, use her influence to try to bring restorative justice. Now, think about it. <laughs> what is the alternative to that? The people who don't agree with our view of sexuality should be homeless? The alternative, they, they need, either need to get in line with how we think and we're not going to do anything to help them because we disagree on that. Um, and then she got thinking some more. So, we, you know, I, I said, you know, imagine. And then she got thinking a little bit more. And she said, you know, in actuality, one of my neighbors moved here from Africa. They didn't understand how American mortgage works. I think it may have been their first home. And they live right across from me. And they bought a house full of mold. She goes, I was in that business. I don't know how in the world there was nobody who was selling that home, the mortgage people or the real estate agents that didn't, they, they had to have known that. Now, that might be a debatable question as to whether they knew it or not. Uh, but this was, this was before everybody's buying homes now, putting $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 more and saying no inspection. Okay, this is before that. This was back when people did inspections. If they knew that you do inspections, Right? So where is the person that is standing for someone who is a foreigner in our land, who doesn't quite understand how all the rules work, where was the person that said, you better have this inspected because you're about to invest a lot of money, tie up a lot of your money. Where, where was someone 
with that kind of influence. And she, she was aghast at, that this would happen to them. And she said, we're over there all the time helping them with that and a bunch of other things. They, they didn't know how to use a lawnmower, you know, uh, and a lot of things like that, but they're over there and they're helping with the mold situation and all that sort of thing. That, personally, as well as my little imagination, you know, kind of taking it out and saying, this is how you, you, exact, you bring influence. You steward your influence for the kingdom of God. So if you have influence in real estate or hiring in any company or politics or management or education or law enforcement or courts or you volunteer in a school or you're part of the PT, PTO or any of things like that, Jesus is calling you to steward your influence for kingdom purposes be concerned with restorative justice, with seeking to, to help more and more people live in ways and experience ways of what life looks like as we pray in the Lord's Prayer when God is ruling on earth as he does in heaven. That's not going to happen fully until he returns, but that's what we're about now, to bring the kingdom of God through our lives wherever we can. So prioritize God's kingdom concerns. That's how we're supposed to do this. Preach the gospel and demonstrate it as well. Uh, steward your influence. The last one is love your neighbor, even if your neighbor is your enemy. When asked, what is the greatest commandment by one of the religious leaders, Jesus said, love God with everything that you are and love your neighbor as yourself. All right? And so... We know it as the great commandment, and, <clears throat> and Jesus calls us to be committed to the great commandment. The whole New Testament does. In fact, the whole Old Testament does as well. The, those are two commandments from the Old Testament. And so what did it look like in Jesus' life to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself? What did it look like? Well, I want to do a little thought experiment because um, there's a lot of different ways of going about this, but I just want you to think about something. Uh, if I were to ask you, <clears throat> excuse me, could you kill this? Okay. <clears throat> All right. Um, Jesus, um, if you think about the whole ministry of Jesus, how many times in your mind think of instances where Jesus was what you and I would call harsh with people? Think about it. How many times was Jesus like an Old Testament prophet bringing down, you know, like, ah, on people. Uh, I thought of two. Um, you, and you may have thought of these two. Uh, so, and there may be a few more, but there's not many. I can only think of two off the top of my head. So one time is when he went into the temple and he overturned the tables, right? And he's got this whip. <laughs> That's pretty harsh. <laughs> all right? Um, you know, we, we all like to say, we're sure he didn't hit anybody and we're sure that none of the tables, you know, but there's tables flying everywhere, all right? It's pretty harsh. Uh, the second time is what we just looked at a few moments ago is the woes on the Pharisees. Now, understand, if you read the Gospels, uh, there's one, one author who put it this way, if you, especially the Gospel of Luke. If you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either on his way to a meal, at a meal, or leaving a meal. I mean, he's eating with people all the time. And where is he most of the time? He's at the home. We think, oh, he's on the home of the sinners, because that's what the Pharisees would you know, accuse him of. Well, he did that. But most of the stories, he's at the home of the religious leaders. 
He's at homes of Pharisees. And he's needling them enough, but he's behaving. <laughs> you know, from their perspective, he is behaving well enough that they keep inviting him to their homes to eat. And you understand, they didn't eat with people they considered to be sinners. It was something about Jesus that, like, we're not going to defile ourselves by eating with this guy. He's, 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 he comports himself like a rabbi. And so this, this happens throughout um, uh, the Gospels. Look at his teaching. Look at his life. It's like 1%, 2% of the time he got harsh. And I would say with good reason, right? About 98, 99% of the time he behaved himself. You know, he acted in a way that people did not feel like, man, is he like, wow, you know, uh, I better stay out of his way. I'm going to get hit. All right. When people look at Christianity today, or certainly on social media, not in any of your lives, but kind of Christianity in general, it's like it's flipped. It's like Christians are known for being harsh 98% of the time. And um, they're gentle and lowly in heart like Jesus, 2% of the time, 1% of the time. And it's sad. It's a sad witness. Now, in reality, it's how media works. You know, they, they, don't, right, they don't tell the story about the dog that came up and sniffed you and you pet him. They tell the story about the dog that bit you, right? So they're not out there reporting all the things that Christians are doing in the name of Christ. And there's a lot of that. But there's a lot of ugly. There's enough ugliness out there in this day and age of polarization that there's this switch, and that's what people are seeing like, like never before. So Bible scholar Christopher Wright tells a very moving story about a friend from India who was led to Christ by reading the Bible. And so um, he was, uh, he was a, an engineer who teaches in a university, and he, in telling his story to Christopher Wright, said he had grown up in India as part of a very despised low caste uh, people, people group. And they suffered a lot at the hands of high caste uh, people in his village, harassment, violence, all kinds of injustice. So one of his life goals was to get educated, get a good job, and get even. So he goes to university with the idea of get educated, um, get a good job, and get even. And on his very first day in his room that he's living in, he finds a Bible. And it happens to be translated into his state's language in India. And he opens it at random to the story of Naboth and Ahab, 1 Kings chapter 21. And it's a story of how unjust King Ahab used his power to steal land from this ordinary farmer, Naboth. And as he's reading it, he's like, this is the story of my life. This is how we have been treated. But then he reads about and is amazed because into the story comes Elijah, this guy that he knows nothing about, but a guy named Elijah. And he comes in the name of some God in the Bible. All right? So, it, you know, he's reading this and he's like, okay, he comes in the name of God, but what God is it? He has no idea. And he denounces King Ahab, 
And he says to Ahab, you don't change, you are going to be punished by God for your cruelty and your evil. So this guy's reading this book, this religious book. He knows it's a religious book. He's never read before. He knows nothing about Christianity. And he can hardly believe it. He says, I can choose from literally in Hinduism millions of gods. Millions of gods. Not one cares about the poor. Stands on behalf of the poor. Like this God I'm reading about here in the Bible. A God who takes the side of those who are suffering and, the, and condemns the government and powerful people for their wicked deeds. He said, these were his words to Christopher, I, I never knew such a God existed. And so he continues reading the Bible and he learns about Jesus and about his death, about his life, and about his resurrection. And he also learns from Jesus that you're supposed to forgive. So his, his goals change from revenge to following Jesus. And it all starts by reading about a God who takes the side of the oppressed. In his book, Love Your Enemies, it's a book by Arthur Brooks. Um, it's not a Christian book, uh, per se. Uh, it's, it's a book, you know, in the general culture. Um, it's called Love Your Enemies, How Decent People Can Save America from the Culture of Contempt. Uh, he said this is... This is this is part of what he says, or part of his argument in the book. He says, we, he says, we don't have an anger problem in American politics. We have a contempt problem. If you listen to how people talk to each other in political life today, you notice it is with pure contempt. When somebody around you treats you with contempt, you never quite forget it. So if you want to solve the problem of polarization today, we have to solve the contempt problem. He's right, and we all know it because it happens to you. It happens to me. I know it because he's like he's reading my heart and my mind, how I react so often. We have a contempt problem, and Christ's answer is love. Tolerating is not enough. Tolerating people who are different than us or think differently than us, it's loving people who think differently than us. Jesus said, love your enemies. That was his teaching. So Jesus called to love your enemies, and, and Arthur Brooks is really, he says, this, this title just sounds so squishy. But he says, I'm not talking about this. And I, and I say the same thing. Jesus' call to love our enemies isn't sappy, and it's not sentimental kind of love. It's love in action. It's the kind of love that is made possible through Christ and his power in us. How? You can love people. You can love people with whom you vehemently disagree. I'm going to go into this more next week. You can love people who vehemently disagree with you and who are even hateful toward you. Jesus did it, and Jesus calls us to do the same. Why can we do that? Because the Bible says God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Again, we have to do this major redefinition. If you actually read the Bible and trace a theme, it's amazing what happens. Your Christianity of your, you know, your, your childhood, your Christianity of the past, all of a sudden gets re you, you start seeing things. And one of the things you discover is sin is not primarily 
It includes, but it's not primarily about, oh, these commandments that I broke. Sin is rebellion against the God of the universe, the rightful king of our lives. And God says, even when you were on the opposite side fighting me, alienated from me, my enemies, the words he uses, you were my enemy. We, we were enemies of each other. I loved you, and I died for you. That's why we can love as well. And that's what we celebrate every week. We begin our response <clears throat> to God's word. We take the bread and we remember that even while we were enemies of God, it's true. As Jesus said, his body was broken for us. Let's eat together. And we take the cup and we remember that his blood was shed for us. Let's drink together. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are a God of love and your action was out of your love to give up your life, to be torn to pieces for our sakes so that we could once again be made right with you. We could be reconciled to you. I pray for anyone here today who has not put their faith in you, received, put their faith by trusting you and receiving what you have done on their behalf. I pray right now that they would repent and believe. They would admit to you that their life has in so many ways been in opposition to you, a desire to be our own gods, a desire to run our own lives, to determine for ourselves what is right and wrong, or to just do what we even believe is wrong. But Father, you have made us right with you. So we admit that to you, Father. I pray for anyone who has not begun a relationship with you that right now they would admit that to you and receive, thanking you, receive what you did on our behalf and that they would begin walking with you. We pray this in Jesus' name.